Let's uh, open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We continue this morning in our study of the attributes of God, and we're taking a few weeks this summer just to immerse ourselves into the character and the nature and the attributes of God. And I believe the word immerse is really an appropriate term because the topic of God, the subject of God, is something that we will immerse ourselves into and never fully comprehend who He is. Charles Spurgeon has written this about the study of God. He, has, he said this, There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. When we come to this master science, and by that he means the study of God, when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and I know nothing, end quote. Isn't that really the case? When we come to study the character of God, it is a subject so vast that our thoughts are lost in its immensity and our pride is drowned in its infinity. And it's a subject so deep we will never plumb the depths and so high that we will never see the heights. And yet, we want to study God. We want to know God. We want to be acquainted more and more with who He is. And yet, in in a sense, it's an impossible task because God is infinite. And as we study the attributes of God this summer... I believe that, in a sense, we're never going to fully accomplish this task because I think he has an infinite number of attributes. God is infinite, and we can't define him down to 12 or 13 or 14 or 9 attributes. As as much as we like to break things down and systematize them, we can't just break God down into his 10 or 11 attributes because he's infinite. And we will spend an eternity in heaven learning about the infinite attributes of God. This morning, though, I would like us to consider one specific attribute. Now, just as a preface to this, you have probably heard and understand that there are two categories of the attributes of God. There are the incommunicable attributes of God, and there are the communicable attributes of God. You can break down His attributes in those two categories. And by incommunicable attributes, we refer to the fact that God has attributes which He alone possesses. That he doesn't share with us attributes which he, the sovereign God, alone has and does not express them to us or share them with us. He is unchanging. He is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. We will never be those things. So those are some of the incommunicable attributes of God. Then there are another category, the communicable attributes of God, those attributes that he does share with us or does communicate to us as those who are made in his image. Attributes like justice and love and mercy and patience. The thing we need to understand about God's attributes are, first and foremost, that they are not independent of one another. They are interconnected, and every member of the Trinity possesses these attributes in the same fashion that the other member of the Trinity has them. They're, They're interconnected. God does not gain attributes or lose attributes. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have all of these attributes in all of their expression. And each attribute really describes the others. 
So God's love is immutable. His love is eternal. His love is just. And so all of his attributes intertwine with the other ones and interconnect with the other ones so that it's almost difficult for us to separate these out. This morning, though, I would like us to focus on one attribute. It is his holiness. I want us to see this morning the holiness of God, and I want us to see specifically how the holiness of God affects how we live today. I want you to understand that this topic is not just an abstract concept. It's not just something you you study and put the book back on the shelf. I want you to see very clearly that the, the holiness of God is not just an intellectual thing. It has profound implications for how we live and what you're going to do even tomorrow. So what do we mean when we say that God is holy? What does that concept mean? Let me give you kind of some thoughts on this. I would say that... Saying that God is holy, he possesses both moral purity and complete separation. What a basic understanding of holiness. It is those two things. That he possesses a moral purity and a complete separation. That, first of all, God is pure and blameless and flawless in all of his being. He is perfectly righteous in all of his ways. He is morally pure. But God is also completely separate. He is far distinct from us, that he is transcendently separate from us, that he is so far above us and so beyond us that we almost cannot relate to what that means. That's what it means to be holy, morally pure and completely separate. There are some who want to say that holiness is his main attribute. I'm not sure we can break God down into his main attributes But we could say this, we could say that it is certainly one of his prominent attributes. That holiness marks God who is who he is. It is one of his most expressed attributes in scripture. Let me give you some examples. Exodus chapter 15 verse 11 says, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? That's who God is. Psalm 22, verse 3 says, You are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And how about Mary? When she hears that she's going to be the mother of of Christ, the Messiah, she says in her Magnificat in Luke 1, verse 49, For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. This is certainly one of the most prominent attributes of God. It implies a separation, the the fact that he is apart from us. And the holiness of God is certainly to say that he is too stunning for us to truly comprehend, that he is too marvelous for us to behold, that his royal splendor far surpasses anything that we are familiar with. There's a weightiness to God. We need to hear that today. Because you know as well as I do that we live in a nation, a country, a culture where there is not a weightiness to God. We've just seen it recently in the Supreme Court's decision to legalize so-called same-sex marriage. There is not a weightiness to God. There is not an appreciation in our society for the fact that God is unique and holy and separate and morally pure and bears his weight upon us. That's foreign in our country. small example of this, we, we, we throw the word holy cow around all the time. How, how can you put the word holy and cow in the same sentence? 
God is separate. He is unique. And yet we live in a day, the great tragedy of our day is that we have dumbed God down, down to our level, if he, any level at all, and we've put in our place a God of our own making. This is the culture in which we live. And I would argue that that, that culture has spilled into the church. Just look what takes place in the church in so many cases around our country. And what we see is a flippancy, an apathy, a lack of real sober-mindedness about who God is. And so it has resulted in kind of this entertainment mentality in the church where things are light and things are fluffy and things are happy and things feel good. That's what seems to be driving much of what takes place in the church today. And I would argue that we must recover a robust understanding of who God is. He is awful. Not A-W-F-U-L. He is A-W-E-F-U-L. He is awful. And he is magnificent. And he is majestic. And he is fearful. And he is mighty. And he is transcendent. And this is what we need to understand God to be. Because it affects how we live. And it affects how we do church. I believe one of the best places we can go to understand this attribute of God is none other than Isaiah chapter 6. It is most likely the, the greatest text in both Old Testament and New Testament about the holiness of God. And I want you to see this morning how Isaiah walks into the temple and is confronted with this glorious picture of the holiness of God, and it changes him forever. And it needs to change us as well. Follow along as I read Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. This is Isaiah's vision of the holiness of God. And he tells us in verse 1 that this vision, this calling, this commission to ministry for him came in the year of King Uzziah's death. Now let me explain a little bit about the settings here. King Uzziah was one of those kings of Judah. And Isaiah ministered over the course of the reign of four kings of Judah. He was a prophet to the southern tribes. And he ministered at a time in the southern tribes when the northern tribes were taken captive by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And so here he is, Isaiah, in the southern kingdom saying, Hey, look, the same thing's going to happen to us that happened to the northern tribes if we don't repent of our idolatry and seek to know this God and worship him appropriately. 
And so he reigned during the time of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, a reign or a prophecy, rather, of 52 years. And it's during the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, that he came to understand the holiness of God. What about King Uzziah? He was one of those godly kings of Judah. Now, you remember, the northern tribes had no godly kings. The southern tribes had eight godly kings. And Uzziah was one of those godly kings. And for the most part, he was marked by godliness in the midst of his reign. He sought the Lord. He pleased the Lord. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And God blessed him because of that. God allowed him to build a a great commercial enterprise in the nation of Judah, the southern tribe. He built a great military and a strong army to defend itself. He fortified the city. He was blessed by God in his kingship because he sought the Lord until his latter days of his life. And like so many, he faded. And the Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 that he began to desire power and wealth and position and prestige. And that's what happens to so many people as they, they rise up in the ranks. What happens is they begin to be consumed with a desire for themselves rather than the glory of God. And that's what happened to Uzziah. He even got to the point where he walked into the temple and said, I want to do what the priests do. And he started to offer incense. And the priests were so angered, they confronted him. In the midst of their confrontation, God afflicted Uzziah with leprosy, a disease that brought him to the end of his life just a short time later. Well, it was in that setting that that Isaiah is called to be a prophet of God. And so presumably he goes into the temple along with other people who were mourning the death of Uzziah because they still appreciated their king. They went to the temple, and Isaiah was one of them who went to the temple probably to find some comfort. He went there to pray, to seek the Lord, to to find some consolation. And while he's in the temple, he is given this incredible vision of the glory and the holiness of God. Verse 1 says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty, and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. This is tremendous. The earthly king is dead. And Isaiah walks into the temple to find some comfort from the Lord. And he suddenly sees the ultimate king. The true king. The king of kings. The Lord of lords. God himself. I want you to notice in verse 1, it says, I saw the Lord. And I want you to notice that the word Lord is in lowercase. It's capital L, lowercase O-R-D. That's the word Adonai in the Hebrew. And it's a word that means master and sovereign and Lord and king. It's distinct from the word that's used in verse 3, Lord. That's capital letters. Do you see it down in verse 3? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Do you see the distinction between those two words? One's lowercase, one's uppercase. The uppercase Lord is the word Yahweh. That's the name of God, the covenant name of God. That's the phrase that refers to his faithfulness and his covenant kindness to his people, Yahweh. But in verse 1, it's the word Adonai, speaking of his lordship, his kingship. That's his title. He is the Lord. And this is who Isaiah sees. He sees the Lord upon his throne. Now, if you were here last week, you should be scratching your head at this point and saying, wait, I I thought you couldn't see the Lord. Remember Moses, who wanted to see the Lord, and God says to him, I'm sorry, Moses, you cannot see me and live. 
And so Moses got to see the backside of God, the, the afterglow of God, as it were. So how does Isaiah say that he saw the Lord? Because no one can see God and live. No one can behold the fullness of God's glory and actually live. So what did he actually see? You know what he actually saw? He saw Christ. Go to John chapter 12, and you can see that in there, it says very clearly that when Isaiah saw God on his throne, he actually saw Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. John 12, verses 39 to 41, say very clearly that he saw Christ That Christ is the full expression of the glory and the holiness of God. So as Isaiah beholds this throne room and he sees God seated on his throne, he is actually beholding the radiance of Christ, who is the exact revelation of God the Father. It's tremendous. So he says, "I, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. This was quite a sight. As he sees God upon his throne and he sees the the holiness of God upon the throne manifest, he sees that that, that God is manifested in a lofty and exalted way. And so exalted is he that the train of his robe fills the temple. You've been to weddings. You've seen those beautiful dresses the brides wear and you see the beautiful train that flows behind them as they walk down the aisle and they stand up in front of you. I have done my share of weddings over the years and I have the best seat in in the house at every wedding. I get to stand in front, I get to see the bride and the groom and interact and cry and all the emotions of that moment And, and there standing behind the woman is this incredible train and the bridesmaids there fixing it, making it look all nice I've seen some long trains, but not like this. This was a train, literally, that filled the temple. Every nook and cranny, every area of this temple room is is penetrated by the train of the robe which God is wearing upon his throne. You can almost sense the grandeur of the sight, the the beauty, the majesty, the glory, this resplendent vision that Isaiah has of God upon his throne. He sees the king, the ultimate king, the, the one true king. Imagine this. And I want you to notice what else he saw. Look at verse 2. He says, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And so here we're introduced to the heavenly attendants around the throne of God. He calls them the seraphim, literally the burning ones. The fiery ones. And it would be appropriate that they be called this because fire is often associated with God's presence in the scriptures, isn't it? Don't we often see where God is present, there is fire? Remember Moses in the burning bush episode? And God confronts him in the burning bush and says, hey, take off your sandals because where you're standing is holy ground. God showed up in fire. And he led his people Israel through the desert, through the wilderness in a pillar of fire. And when he greets them at the mountain of Mount Sinai and gives them the the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 19, it says that he came to that mountain in smoke and fire. So where God is, there is fire. And so it would not surprise us that we see these seraphim, these burning ones, 
who are around the throne of God. Each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. Why, why, why this? We don't know for sure, but most likely the two that covered the face are, are because they are unable to see and behold the glory and the holiness of God. That even these angels, even these, these perfect creatures are not, not able to gaze brazenly into the face of God. Even these perfect creatures, these dazzling seraphim who are in perfection in a perfect place are not allowed to see the perfections and the holiness of, of God and all of his splendor. So they cover their face and they cover their feet out of humility out of a deep sense of of where they are standing and whose presence they are in, and with two they fly, encircling the throne and serving the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is a tremendous vision. Tremendous vision of the holiness of God. But what I want you to understand is that the incredible thing about these creatures is not what they look like, but what they say. That's the most magnificent thing about this vision of these seraphim around the throne of God is is not what they look like or how they appear, but what they actually say. And you can see it in verse 3. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. These seraphim, these angelic creatures are around the throne singing one song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Three times they say it. Some say that's in reference to the Trinity, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each holy, and that's possibly an indication because that's certainly true. But I think there's a greater reason here why they say three times that he is holy. This is known as the trihagion, the threefold repetition of the word holy. And the reason he does this, the reason they say this is for emphasis that when you want to emphasize something in Hebrew, you would repeat it. Now, we have different ways of doing that. When we want to emphasize something, you, you underline it, or you star it, or you highlight it, or you bold it, or you italicize it, or you circle it. Or if you're speaking, you just say it really loud. Not in Hebrew. In Hebrew, when you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. And you say it over and over again for the point of emphasis, to get your point across, to communicate that this is really true. I was reading this week about an example in Genesis 14 where it talks about uh, pits. If you go to Genesis 14 in your English Bible, it will say that the kings that were warring in this valley actually fell into great tar pits. But it's not actually tar pits in the Hebrew. It's pit pits. It's repeated twice for the purpose of emphasis that these are some serious pits. This is what R.C. Sproul says about this. He says the Jews were saying that there are pits, and there are pits. Some pits are pittier than other pits. These pits, the pit pits, were the pittiest pits of all. It is one thing to fall into a pit, but if you fall into a pit pit, you're in deep trouble. You ever fall into a pit pit? Why? Because they're emphasized for the sake of emphasis. They're showing that these are some serious pits, and if you fall in these pits, you're in trouble. 
That's how you emphasize things in Hebrew. Well, that's what's taking place right here in Hebrews chapter, or Isaiah chapter 6. The angels, the seraphim, are calling out, Holy, holy, holy. God is not just holy, and he's not just holy, holy. He is holy, 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 which means he's really, 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 really holy. I went to seminary to find that out. He is a holy God. And did you know that nowhere in Scripture is any other attribute of God described that way? It's never said in Scripture that he's love, 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 or he's mercy, 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 or he's justice, justice, justice. This is the only attribute of God where he is described as a thrice holy God. He's holy, holy, holy. In fact, so holy is he, verse 3 says, the whole earth is full of his glory. And so holy is he, verse 4 tells us, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. God is so holy that as the seraphim engage in their angelic praise around the throne of God, this antiphonal worship where they're back and forth speaking about the holiness of God, the effect it has upon the temple is it shakes it to its very foundation. The temple, the doors, the walls, the very structure of this this temple is shaken to the core as the song of the seraphim thunderously echoes across this temple and it rocked the building to its very foundation. That's how holy God is. A temple filled with smoke. It's been said where there's smoke, there's fire. But more accurately, we should say, where there's smoke and fire, there is God in his holiness. And so the obvious realization that Isaiah comes to at this point is that God is majestically, transcendently, overwhelmingly, splendidly, gloriously, magnificently, wonderfully, superbly holy. And the question we want to ask this morning is, what effect should this have upon us? What is the impact of the holiness of God upon the seraphim and upon Isaiah? What kind of effect should it have upon us? Because we can't be confronted with the holiness of God and just walk away and say, ah, that that was interesting. So I want to give you this morning four practical consequences of God's holiness. Four practical consequences of God's holiness, four ways that your life should be different because of the fact that God is holy. Number one, the first practical consequence of this is that it should inform your attitude in worship. It should inform your attitude in worship that that the holiness of God should affect us to the point that when we are engaged in worship, which you are always engaged in worship because it's not just something we do between 9.30 and 11 on Sundays. It's a matter of life. Every aspect of our life needs to be permeated with an attitude of worship which is informed by the holiness of God. Look again at verse 3. It says, one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I want you to notice that this is holiness-induced worship. This is God-centered worship. 
This is theologically driven worship. This is truth-saturated worship. When these creatures come face-to-face with the holiness of God and they engage in their antiphonal praise around the throne, the only response is that of worship, truth-driven, holiness-inspired worship. It's not manufactured. It's not worked up. It's not motivated by lights, sounds, the setting. There's no external manufacturing of this kind of worship. No, this is genuine, glorious, heavenly worship that springs from the heart of creatures who are in awe of God's holiness. So we have to understand right from the beginning that true worship always springs from the heart of those who understand the holiness of God. And if you're lacking some depth to your worship, the solution is not better music. It's not more sound or volume. It's not better lights. No, if you're lacking depth in your worship, the cure for that is a deeper understanding of who God is. It is theology that drives doxology. We saw this in Revelation chapter 4 a number of years ago when we worked through those marvelous texts in Revelation 4 and 5. It says in verse 8 of Revelation 4, And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, and I think those might be seraphim as well, although the only place they're mentioned in Scripture is in Isaiah chapter 6, but certainly in Revelation 4 it seems to give us a similar description that these four living creatures, each of them having six wings, full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come, and when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. They're doing the same thing. And so these four living creatures around the throne in Revelation 4 and these seraphim around the throne in Isaiah chapter 6 are all engaged in the same kind of worship. It is holiness-inspired and induced worship. And because of that, they give glory, they give honor, they give thanks to him who sits on the throne. Friends, this informs how we worship God. This has a direct implication upon how we approach God. We don't just kind of march into God's presence flippantly and say, hey, God, what's up? It's been a while. We don't do that. There's not a a flippancy that we don't approach him just kind of irreverently and rush thoughtlessly into his, his presence. We don't do this. There's a weightiness, a gravitas to God. And we approach him with a deep sense and awe of who he is. We can't approach him casually, cavalierly, nonchalantly. But I think in many cases, that's what's happening today. In many cases, we have a Nutrisweet God. You know what I mean by that? No Nutrisweet is. Sugar substitute. No substance to it. There's no calories to it. It just kind of tastes sweet, but there's no substance to it. There's no caloric content to Nutrisweet. And I think that's what we've done in many cases with God. We have created a Nutrisweet God. 
a God with no substance, a God with, with no weightiness to him. And the result of that is that we're shallow in our worship. I'm speaking generally. Our lives are shallow. Our worship is shallow. Our churches are shallow. And the cure, my friends, is a deep awareness of the holiness of God. Because when you're given a vision of the glory and the holiness of God, your only response is that of worship. Deep, theologically truth-driven worship. So if you want to go high in your worship, you've got to go deep in your understanding of who God is. If you want to ascend high, you've got to go, do- go low, go deep into an understanding of the character of God. And I would argue that the church is strongest when it recognizes and honors the holiness of God. You want a strong church? You preach a holy God. You want a strong family? You preach a holy God. You want a strong spiritual life? You hold on to the high view of God and the holiness of God. Friends, there has to be a weightiness in our worship. I don't mean a boringness. I don't, I don't mean a, a soberness. I, I mean a weightiness, a deep sense of who we are worshiping. He's not a flippant, trite, casual God. He is the holy God of the universe through whom seraphim and angels fall down in deep holiness-inspired worship. Is your worship affected by the holiness of God? Number two. It should intensify your awareness of sin. What, what else should a, an understanding of the holiness of God do for us? Not only should it inform our attitude and worship, it, it should intensify our awareness of sin. And that's what we see taking place in the life of Isaiah. As Isaiah is given this vision of the holiness of God, he is absolutely devastated, undone. Coming a part of the seams as he has given this glimpse of himself against the backdrop of God's holiness. Look at verse 5. Then I said, this is Isaiah speaking, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, woe is me. Literally, I'm damned. I'm under judgment. I I am under God's wrath. I am unclean. And I see myself for who I really am in light of who God really is. He is absolutely devastated and he pronounces woes upon himself. Now, in order to appreciate this, you need to go back to chapter 5. Let me show you a couple things from chapter 5, because what he's been doing in Isaiah chapter 5 is he's been pronouncing woes and judgments upon the nation of Israel, and he's been pronouncing uh, the damnation that he just pronounced upon himself, upon the nation of Israel, for their lack of obedience to God. Look at verse 8 of Isaiah 5. He says, Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there's no more room. He says, Woe to those people in our country who think they can just build their house. You will experience judgment. And then down to verse 11, he says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink. He says, if you're a part of our country and you are drinking yourself silly, you are going to pronounce judgment upon yourself. Woe to you. Look at verse 18. 
Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes. He says, if you're going to engage in sin, you're going to pronounce damnation upon yourself. Look at verse 20. Woe to those who call good evil good and good evil. Verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. You see what he's doing? He says, listen, nation of Israel. If this is how you live, you are speaking judgment upon yourself. Now come to Isaiah chapter 6. And having been given this vision of the glory and the holiness of God, he pronounces the same woe upon himself. Isaiah realizes that now he himself is subject to the very judgment that he's been pronouncing against his nation because he himself is unclean. He says, I am Ruined. Literally, he says, I'm undone. I'm coming apart of the seams. I'm being destroyed. I'm falling apart. I'm unraveling. I'm being annihilated. I am completely falling apart. I'm disintegrating. I am absolutely devastated and destroyed by this vision of God. See, in one single glimpse of the holiness of God, all of his self-confidence was shattered. And he had some. He was of nobility. He was kind of the rock star prophet in Judah. He was signing autographs. People thought Isaiah was the, 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 the guy you wanted to be around. He was in cahoots with the king. And all of a sudden, the veil of the throne room of God is pulled back. Isaiah sees God for who he is, and he sees himself for who he is, and he's completely devastated. It's what happens when you compare yourself to God instead of others. You ever walk into a paint store, and you say, I need some white paint, and there's about 692 versions of white paint. There's off-white, and there's almond white, and there's eggshell white. And then you grab the one pure white piece. And you compare all those other shades of white to that one. And suddenly it looks like white and another color. That's what Isaiah just did. He stopped comparing himself to others around him. And he compared himself to the absolute standard of holiness. And his only result, the only consequence, the only thing he could say was, I am devastated. And notice where he locates that uncleanness. Notice where he identifies his sinfulness. Look at verse 5. He says, because I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, why that? I mean, if I'm writing that, I'd say, you know, I'm, I'm a man of unclean habits and thoughts and motives. Not Isaiah. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And the reason he says that is because of what Jesus says. He says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so Isaiah recognizes that his lips are unclean because his heart is unclean. And the words coming out of his mouth are indicative of a heart that is not pleasing to the Lord. 
And so he recognizes his own personal sinfulness, and then he recognizes the sinfulness of his people. He says in verse 5, I live among a people of unclean lips. Why? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And for the first time in his life, Isaiah understands who God is. And because he understands who God is, he understands who he is. A sinner. A sinner before a holy God. Friends, this is what happens when you're exposed to the holiness of God. Remember Job? He says in Job 42, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. When Job gets a glimpse of the glory of God, he says, I'm done. How about Peter? Luke 5, verse 8, when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Friends, listen, the holiness of God should make you look differently at your life. It's pretty easy to compare yourself to others. I'm doing great. I'm not doing what that person's doing. I'm not living that way. I'm not engaged in the kind of sin and depraved life that they're doing. I'm doing pretty good. No, 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 no. Wrong standard. You put yourself up against the backdrop of God's holiness and you see how you match up. I wonder this morning, is there any hidden sin in your life? Any sin in your life that you're rationalizing away and saying, it's not that big a deal because really it's not affecting anybody else. And those people over there, they're, they're, they're engaged in all kinds of sin that I'm not even engaged in. This is small. Oh, no, that's the wrong standard, friend. You compare your life to the holiness of God, and it will expose any hidden sins. Number three, it should increase your appreciation for grace. This is how understanding a holy, the holiness of God should affect you. It should, first of all, inform your attitude in worship. It should intensify your awareness of sin. And thirdly, it should increase your appreciation for grace. And praise God that the story doesn't stop in verse 5. Because God didn't want Isaiah to be just completely undone by his sin and then have nowhere else to go. No, God wanted to be gracious to Isaiah, and that's exactly what he does. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. This is tremendous. It's not the end of the story. Now imagine Isaiah, put yourself in his shoes. He has just been exposed to God's intense holiness. And I have to imagine at this point, he wants a hole to crawl in. He he wants the roof to collapse on him. He wants the earth to somehow open up and swallow him. He wants a place to hide, but there's no place to hide. He is exposed to the blunt, brazen holiness of God. And he is naked and exposed before this ultimate standard of holiness. Someone as well said, relentless guilt screams from every pore. And then verse 6. The seraphim flew to me with a burning coal, which he'd taken from the altar, the sacrificial altar, the place where sacrifices were offered. I mean, he took a, a, a tong and he lifted one of those burning coals and he touched my mouth with it. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. And your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. 
Where did Isaiah identify the root of his holy, or the root of his sin? It was his mouth. And isn't it ironic that the very cleansing nature of God's grace starts at the very place that Isaiah identified his sin with his mouth? And this angel, this seraphim, comes and touches his lips. You ever burned your lips? It's one of the most sensitive parts of your body. I have to imagine at this moment that Isaiah felt the excruciating pain of the heat and the smoke from the burning flesh of his lips filled his nostrils and yet in one dose of grace, he's cleansed, forgiven. He was the inmate on death row, strapped to the table where they would inject the medications that would take his life. That's where he was. And the executioner was counting down 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, stop. You've been pardoned, forgiven, cleansed. His sin is taken away, his guilt is removed, and in a moment, in a moment of God's abundant grace, he is completely cleansed and made new. And notice he didn't ask for it. Notice he didn't cry out for it. God, in his sovereign grace, pursued Isaiah and cleansed him with this burning coal. Friends, this is so good. This is the joy of the gospel. In the Old Testament, it was a burning coal from the altar. In the New Testament, it's Jesus Christ on the cross who poured out his life, who became our sacrifice, who became our sacrificial lamb, who laid down his life in order that we might have forgiveness. Maybe you're here this morning and you see an area of your life that has been sinful. And nobody knows about it. You do. My friend, let the holiness of God expose that sin and then run to the cross. Where there's mercy, there's forgiveness, where that, that sin can be paid for, that sin can be taken away, where that guilt can be purged, because that's what God does. And that's what a right understanding of the holiness of God does. It drives us to our knees in repentance of our sin, which then drives us to the cross where we find forgiveness for that sin. You see? Do you see why a right understanding of God is so crucial? Because there's grace and His holiness drives us to His grace. There's one more. Number four, it should incite your availability for ministry. It should incite your availability for ministry. It should inform your attitude in worship, intensify your awareness of sin, increase your appreciation for grace, and then it should incite your availability for ministry. Look at verse 8. He says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. Up to this point, the voice that Isaiah has heard is the voice of the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy. But suddenly in verse 8, he hears the, the Lord's voice. 
And the Lord speaks and says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And that may be a subtle reference to the Trinity there, the us. Who will go for us? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Put yourself in Isaiah's shoes again. You've just been devastated by a vision of God's holiness. And now you've been cleansed from your sin by the sanctifying grace of the Lord. And now your question is, what do I do? Where do I go with this? I tell you what he does. He hurls himself into God's service. He says, I've been brought face to face with the glory and the holiness of God, and I've been purged from my sin by the grace of God, and the only response I can give now is, Lord, use me. Lord, use me. God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? God's God's not asking, uh, I don't know anybody who will go. That's not what he's saying. He's giving Isaiah the opportunity to respond. And that's exactly what he does. Isaiah, at this point, raises his hand and says, um... Maybe me? (laughs) I'll go. He's been devastated. He's been brought to a point of confession. He's been cleansed. And now he says, God, use me. That's how it works. That's how it works. That's how it worked in the Apostle Paul's life. Confronted on the road to Damascus, confronted in his sin, driven to his knees by the blazing glory of Christ, repents, confesses, comes to Christ, and then goes to be the great apostle to the Gentiles. That's what happened in my life. 20 years of living in sin. 20 years of living in rebellion to God. 20 years of pursuing my own pleasures. And God got a hold of my heart in college and changed my life. And showed me my sin and brought me to grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be used of him. I want to be able to tell other people about the glories of Christ. I want to be able to tell other people about the holiness of God. See, because when you get a vision like that, you don't just kind of stuff it inside and say, yep, that's good stuff. No, it makes you want to go out. It makes you want to say, Lord, use me. Lord, use me for your sake. Use me for your purposes. doesn't mean you need to go into full-time ministry. But it does, in a sense, mean you go into full-time ministry. Because you're all in ministry. There's people sitting all around you in your neighborhoods and your workplaces that need to hear the gospel. And I'll tell you what the holiness of God does is it frees you up to be a radical evangelist and a faithful servant of God. Listen, you can't get a glimpse of the holiness of God and go sit on the sidelines. 